Hannah, beautifully read. Thank you. Uh, well, today um, we're celebrating the day of Pentecost. And we're thinking about um, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I guess the question is, why is the gift of the Holy Spirit so important? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to ask some other questions first, probably beginning with the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Um, and the answer to that is that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, the Holy Spirit is a person. Um, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes he's also called the Advocate. The Holy Spirit is a person, one of three persons who make up the Trinity. And I'll say more about that next week when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's who he is. The next question is, what does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? And the answer in a sentence is that the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest, in other words, to make known the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. And you may have heard people say that we live in the age of the Spirit, and in fact we do live in the age of the Spirit. Um, and what people are referring to when they say we live in the age of the Spirit is, is that this is the age in which God's presence is, is made known, is made obvious through the Holy Spirit. And that's different to at other times in history. In, in the Old Testament, in, in the days represented by the Old Testament, God made his presence felt. He made his presence obvious, that is to say manifest, in many and various ways. Sometimes his presence was manifest by way of fire, as when Moses encountered the burning bush, which, though engulfed in flame, was not consumed and wasn't burnt up. And that was the presence of God. And Abraham once saw something similar. And sometimes God revealed himself in the form of, of a person. Abraham walked with the Lord. And Isaiah saw the Lord in his temple. And sometimes God spoke audibly to people, a disembodied voice, so to speak, um, calling them to speak on his behalf and in doing so making them his prophets. And the young Samuel, as a very, very little boy, he heard God's audible voice. Took him a while to realize that it was God's voice, but he heard God's audible voice speaking to him. And in fact, the entire nation of Israel heard God's voice when they gathered together under Mount Sinai after the Exodus event. They'd come out of Egypt and they heard God's audible voice and it terrified them. And in the Old Testament, sometimes people were filled with the Spirit of God. And that is how God made his presence known. And sometimes the presence of God was manifest in pillars of cloud, pillars of fire, or dense smoke. And in the days of the tabernacle, and thereafter in the days of the temple in Jerusalem, God promised to be found when he was sought in the temple. But with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, all of that changed. For in his days, in the days of the Son, represented by the four Gospels, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God's presence was manifest through his son, Jesus. And the place, therefore, where you found God was in the face of Jesus of Nazareth, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
And at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, Jesus ascended back to heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, some 40 days later, the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples in power. And so here we are in the age of the Spirit. We wait for the return of Jesus. The time, this time, the age of the Spirit, the time during which God will reveal his presence to the world through the ministry of his people, through the work of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, we live in the age of the Spirit. And there is a second sense in which we live in the age of the Spirit, and that's very important too. You see, in the age of the Old Testament, only some people experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit. Kings and prophets, usually. But we live in the age of the Spirit. Am I all right here, Matt? Am I crackling, or are you? Very good. That's great, lovely. I'm talking about the age of the Spirit. Uh, We live in the age of the Spirit in a second sense, which is really important, and that is that in the Old Testament, only some people were filled with the Spirit. That wasn't for ordinary believers. But we live in the age of the Spirit in the sense that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a covenantal promise from God to all believers. This is what the Anglican Church typically celebrates on the day of Pentecost, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all, not just some, of God's people. And so the work of the Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. But why is this gift so important? Well, it's so important because the Holy Spirit ministers to us the presence of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is present, Jesus is present by the Spirit. So everything that Jesus did for and through his his disciples in the Gospels, Jesus continues now to do for and through us to the world through the Holy Spirit. You uh, might like to um, turn with me to the Gospel of John page 876, and we're going to look at chapter 16. Chapter 16 of John's Gospel, Jesus is warning his disciples about what will happen in the future. From their perspective, um, the future from, 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 from that time, from their perspective, immediately and thereafter after Jesus' departure. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the evening before his death, and speaking of the time after his return to heaven, Jesus says, picking up at verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you.
Jesus is telling his disciples the frankly astonishing news that they're better off without him. They are better off without him being physically present. How could that be? How, what could be better than to have Jesus physically present so that we might be able to talk to him face to face? Well, actually, what is better than having Jesus physically present in our face is having the Holy Spirit spiritually present in our hearts. That actually is better. And because in this age the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers, each and every one of us, post-conversion, post-conversion, we all have an access to God that is more intimate than the people of Israel had at the temple and more intimate than the disciples had when they walked with Jesus in the land. Please turn with me now. Let's have a look at the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 8. Page 972, Hebrews 8, the author of this letter, is writing to Christians of Jewish background. Now, at this time, they're facing persecution and rejection because of their newfound Christian faith. And many of them were considering hiding, so to speak, by reverting back to Judaism, a religion that was legal in the Roman Empire so they couldn't be persecuted. But the author is teaching them that actually reverting back to Judaism is not an option. The covenant we have with God through Christ is infinitely superior to the covenant the Israelites had with God through Moses. Picking up at verse 7, the author writes, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, And and now he's going to quote from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. He's going to quote from Jeremiah and he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord! Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Well, the new covenant which we have with God through Jesus is a covenant predicated on God's forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in order that in his name we may have forgiveness of sins. God has forgiven. God has forgiven and, as it says in verse 12, forgotten our sins. Isn't that great? God both forgives and forgets. He's got no idea what you've done once you've asked him to forgive you for it. Isn't that lovely? 
forgotten our sins, transgressions, and evil deeds, blameless and without accusation in his sight. But now in the Old Testament, the, the people of God, in contrast, the people of God, they knew that God existed. They knew that he had the power to save. They knew that he had the power to destroy. They knew what he liked and what he didn't like. And they knew what God required of them as his people. And yet they constantly turned away from God again and again and again. The gift of the Holy Spirit, God's personal powerful presence in our lives means that we do the opposite. We turn towards God again and again and again. And this is what we see when we see folk converted, isn't it? I mean, when people come to faith in Christ, um, this is what we see because in general terms, pre-conversion, I mean, we're all the same before we're converted, And this is what we're like. Uh, Here are some things about us before we come to faith in Christ. Generally, we don't like Christians. um, uh, And in fact, they are the butt of many of our jokes. We hate the idea of going to church. I mean, why would you go to church on a sunny Sunday morning? Um, Church is often bizarre and obscure and just a little bit creepy or boring or both. Um, Wouldn't dream of picking up a Bible, an antiquated book full of contradictions, which doesn't really make sense. Um, We might pray quietly and secretly in times of acute stress, but most of the time we want to avoid God as much as possible. After conversion, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, all of those God-avoiding tendencies are reversed. We pray continually, wanting to be with God as much as possible. We read our Bibles daily, perceiving in that spiritual discipline a real meeting with God through his written word. He speaks to us and feeds us and encourages us and teaches us as we read his word. No longer an incomprehensible text, but rather a love letter we can't get enough of. When we read the Bible, we see what God requires of us and it resonates in our heart. And we know that it is right and we desire it and we pursue it. And when we stumble, we pick ourselves up and and have another go. We know that it's right. It's already in our hearts. We love and commit to going to church in order to join in praise and worship, an intensely pleasurable experience, especially in the company of other believers who we now seek out rather than avoid because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we love and they encourage us in our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He turns He turns into God-seeking creatures. He turns us into God-seeking creatures instead of God-avoiding sinners. Praise God. Thank you, God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that we are not only God-seeking missiles, but we are successful God-seeking missiles. We know God. We've met him. We've found him because, in fact, he has searched us out first and called us by name. Let's uh, turn to John's first letter, chapter 2, page 986. John's first letter, page 986, chapter 2. And I'm going to begin at verse 20. And John's writing to to Christians and, and he says, verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. 
And all of you know the truth. Now, when he speaks about an anointing, he is talking about the fact that his recipients have all received the Holy Spirit. They've all been baptized in the Spirit of God. And because they have the Spirit, they know the truth. Not just any truth. He, he is alluding to, he is, this is John's way of referring to Jesus. Because they have the Spirit, they know Jesus. They've met him. So then, because they have the Spirit, they've met Jesus. Verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the truth? The truth is Jesus. Jesus is the truth and the life and the way. No, no lie comes from the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. But as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. John has revealed to us a lot about what he thinks a Christian is. What is a Christian? A Christian is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. But a Christian is someone who is being instructed, guided, taught, protected by Jesus directly through the Holy Spirit. We've got to understand here that Christianity is not some pyramid selling scheme. It is not as though Jesus discipled the apostles and then the apostles discipled the first generation of Christians and then they discipled the second generation of Christians and they discipled the third generation of Christians and so on and so on and so forth, way on down to, to the day in which we live. That's, that's not what's happening at all. Well, actually, it is what's happening physically, materially, but spiritually what's happening is completely different. What's happening spiritually is that Jesus is discipling the apostles and then after that, Jesus discipled the first generation of Christians. And then after that, Jesus discipled the second generation of Christians. And that Jesus has discipled each and every Christian all the way down to us, including you and me. Who's teaching you? Who's guiding you? Jesus is. We do not need teachers. Not in the Old Testament sense, because the presence of God and the knowledge of God are not mediated through teachers. That doesn't mean there is no place uh, for teachers or for teaching. On the contrary, the Spirit gifts some of his people with a gift for teaching, others for evangelizing, others for healing and miracles, others for prophecy, others for tongues, others for interpretation of tongues, others for discerning between spirits, others for administrative leadership and management and hospitality, etc., etc., etc. But not so as to make others dependent upon us as though we were the mediators between man and God, but rather to build up the church 
learning how to depend, a church who is herself learning to depend more and more upon Jesus to meet her every need. So my job is to help you trust and love and obey Jesus more and more with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given me and for you to need me less and less. And your job using the Holy Spirit's gifts that he's given you is to help me love and trust and obey Jesus more and more and to need you less and less. And as we do this well, using our different gifts, we'll grow in healthy, mutual interdependence, but in an ever greater dependence upon Jesus who wants to meet our every need. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a personal relationship with God through Jesus. We have the mind of Christ, open access to the wisdom of God. And one of the ways in which this can be seen is actually in the book of Acts. Um, it's actually by looking at something that happens in Acts chapter 1 and seeing what happens in Acts chapter 2. And what happens in Acts chapter 1 is that the disciples need to determine what God's will is on a particular matter. The matter is, who shall we elevate to the position of apostle number 12 now that Judas Iscariot has gone out and departed from us? And in order to determine God's will, they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. And what they did, technically speaking, is called divination. Divination is determining the will of God by way of prayer combined with a random outcome generator. It's a mechanical approach. It's using technology to determine what God wants. And this approach has ample Old Testament precedents. Gideon used divination to get confirmation from God that he was on the right track. Because Gideon used a fleece. That's right. Divination. And for generations of priests in the temple, they used a technique called Urim and Thummim. We don't know a great deal about what that was. It was possibly two smooth stones, one white, one black, placed in the breastplate of the high priest's garments, a yes-no indicator to any question that was prayerfully set before the Lord in the presence of the Lord in the temple, a way of determining God's will. And God blessed that in many places. It was from God. But this is my point. After this example of divination, we have the day of Pentecost, in chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all of the disciples, and thereafter, there is never again any mention of divination. Occasionally, we may find ourselves compelled uh, to resort to divination. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm going to flip a coin here. Heads I go, tails I stay. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> But in actual fact, it isn't appropriate. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not appropriate because it's not needed. Um, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, gives us the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God. So, dear Lord Jesus, please give me wisdom about whether to stay or whether to go. Amen. That is a much better prayer because Jesus will answer it. In fact, he will speak to you and he will answer your prayer and give you wisdom 
whether or not you are aware of him speaking to you and answering your prayer and giving you wisdom. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need to be able to discern the guidance of God to be guided by God. What a relief. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The Holy Spirit speaks. He even speaks to people who don't recognize his voice. But he speaks. He speaks through people by way of preaching, teaching, wise counsel, prophecy, and through tongues together with interpretation. The Holy Spirit speaks directly to us through God's written word, as well as sometimes by an audible voice. And sometimes by a voice that is not audible in our ears, but we hear in our mind, in our heart. The Holy Spirit teaches and guides us, bringing things to mind, reminding us of the scriptures, showing us things in our circumstances, making us aware of perhaps the meanings behind coincidences, putting people on our hearts for prayer, etc., etc., etc. The Holy Spirit speaks. It is the Spirit who is teaching you and me about how to be more like Jesus in order that Jesus might be at work in us, for us, and through us. Um, In the past, when we've talked here at St. Barnabas about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I've talked about how in the Bible, the Spirit is sometimes represented by the symbol of a dove. The Holy Spirit fell in power on Jesus like a dove, in bodily form like a dove. And in the, in the Bible, the dove is symbolic of innocence and harmlessness, being both gentle and blameless, peaceable and peace-loving. And that is what the Holy Spirit is like. He is gentle and blameless. He is beautiful in his gentleness. And he helps us to be like that too. When, when I was a new Christian, one of the first things I learned about the Holy Spirit was that, in the words of the man who was teaching me about the Holy Spirit, he, he said, Stephen, the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. Uh, and what he meant by that was that the Holy Spirit, as I was learning, he always respects our decisions. He will never override your will. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes upon people in great power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you in power, the experience from time to time, it it can be overwhelming. But you, most emphatically, remain in control. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. You're never out of control with the Holy Spirit. Why I point this out is that in all of the things I've said today, we need to remember that just we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we now need to learn how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit because, well, actually, despite what I said before, actually sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. And sometimes fellow Christians are a pain in the neck. And sometimes worship in church can be boring and dull. And we don't want to go. And, uh, and I have to go because I'm the pastor. And sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes we, don't, we, don't want, we don't feel ourselves wanting to pray. And in all of these things, we actually need the Holy Spirit to help us, to be like oil in our lamp, to be like liquid oxygen and kerosene in our bellies, to help us to continue to be these God-seeking missiles that God has made us to be. 
We can cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who always points us to Jesus. Or we can grieve him as we go the other way, focus on the things of the world, and and in the satisfaction of our appetites without reference to God. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He will respect our decisions. He will surrender to our will. But as we surrender to his will, we will grow in our passion for Jesus and our desire to be just like him. The Holy Spirit, in closing, the Holy Spirit, in closing, um, as Paul says three times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is a good deposit, deposited here, guaranteeing what is yet to come. That is to say, our inheritance. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of eternal life because, because he is in me and he's in you and the Holy Spirit is immortal. He cannot die. He is God. He has life in himself. So I know that I can't die because he's with me and in me. He guarantees what is to come. And what is to come? What is our hope? Well, what would be better than what we have now? At the moment, we've got a greater intimacy with God than the disciples had when they walked with Jesus in the land. But what would be even better is to not only have God's spiritual presence in our hearts, but to have Jesus physically present in our faces too. That would be the best of both worlds. Wouldn't that be great? And that's what we're waiting for with the return of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the good deposit guaranteeing that that is going to happen. The gift of the Holy Spirit to be is the, is the promise of our inheritance to be fully with God, even more fully than we are now. Thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Please give us more of your Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus and the expansion of your kingdom. Amen. The Lord is with you.